In the 1977 movie Star Wars, we are introduced to Han Solo, a smuggler, and his first mate, Chewbacca. Han Solo is a great pilot. He can outmaneuver the ships of the Galactic Empire, and when things get tough, he just disappears by jumping into hyperspace. But in The Empire Strikes Back, the sequel from three years later, our heroes find themselves faced with something they've never seen before, an asteroid field. And in a galaxy far, far away from, from Star Wars, we find ourselves today with an environment that feels rather similar. We've heard over the past two days of the many asteroids that are coming at us from every direction. We have learned how we need to rethink of our assumptions on geopolitics, globalization, the macroenvironment, and even what Australia's future will hold. But how do you navigate the financial equivalent of an asteroid field? Doing nothing is not an option with the Imperial fleet and Darth Vader, or in our case, inflation and Darth Vladimir looming. You can try and navigate around the asteroid field, but C-3PO gives you the odds at 3,720 to 1. Now, how does he even know that? Does he know of the previous 3,721 attempts all in the same asteroid field with Millennium Falcons, with pilots as skilled as Han Solo? I have to tell him I really love when he tells him never to give him the odds. Maybe just like me, he's just fed up with artificial intelligence, with his surgical precision predictions for a future based on a past that doesn't really quite repeat itself. Now, so the question in my head is why does Han Solo tell him never to give him the odds? Perhaps he never intends to go through the asteroid field. Instead, uh, Han Solo chooses to ride a big asteroid through the field. The macro environment that you heard about over the past few days is critical in understanding the many asteroids we are going to face in the future. But I'm here today to tell you that it doesn't necessarily mean that we should try to navigate around a fast-changing geopolitical and macro environment, unless that's where your core competency happens to lie. For many of us, that's unfeasible. It will lead to excessive turnover with low probability of success. I am here to give you the bottom-up view of how to navigate this environment. I believe that by looking at the way people in emerging markets have already adapted, it can give a blueprint for investors. Unlike people in the developed world, people in emerging markets are flying without personal or government-provided safety nets. Therefore, they need to adapt very quickly to changes in their environment. At the Strategies Conference two years ago, I discussed how the response we observed in COVID gave us a blueprint of how we can navigate an uncertain, emotionally challenged, and anxiety-laden world. I argued that by just observing behavior without understanding the underlying emotions and motivations, behavior looked random and, and even unpredictable. To understand behavior, you need to understand the emotions behind them. And 
During COVID, people went through three distinct emotional phases. First came anxiety, where people were trying to establish safety and looked for assurance. Then came acceptance, where they accepted that the world was changing and there was a new reality, and they needed to reflect and reevaluate on what was important to them. And finally, in adaptation, they started believing that their life after COVID would be better based on what they learned in during the COVID period. Now, two years ago, I argue that we can use this model in a world that would, where anxieties were set to increase. And you can add war and inflation to this, to this list I gave then. In ethnographic studies, we have done over the past two years since the presentation, and including the last one in Brazil, we have seen how people have been adapting to this model. The people who have struggled the most are the ones who refuse to move to acceptance. They refuse to accept that the world has changed. We study people's lives in emerging markets that during a lifetime, some of them see a 20-fold in increase in their income. They move from their villages to high productivity jobs in towns, pulling themselves and their families out of poverty, providing for education, health care, and even financial security for their children, and still aspiring for more and better for them. These guys are used to the, a life that is moving at breathtaking speed. They're taking for granted their wage increases, their greater wealth, their improving health. And sometimes the pace of their life feels like a, a, a Star Wars jump to hyperspace. And then COVID happened, and they found that they no longer recognize the world around them. So to move from anxiety was critical. The people who refused to accept got stuck in this endless anxiety loop where with every asteroid hit, they went to try to reestablish safety and looked for reassurance. So acceptance was critical. And with acceptance came a new framework on how to look at change for them. They started reframing in order to adapt, and with that, they started anticipating change. With that, put them into this loop of adapting to this new environment. Zeze is a typical person that has been very quick at adapting to change. She comes from uh, Brazilian's northeastern state of Bahia, from the city of Salvador. She sells a West African street food called Agarajé. You recognize these uh, street food sellers called Bayanas from their white clothes and colorful headscarves. Zeze has extreme confidence in the business she runs. When the pandemic hit and there were no street events, she took her cart and put it in the street and just sold to cars passing by in order to generate some income for the women for who work for her and for her family. Her purpose is to deliver a high quality value for money at a great price product. And inflation that you've been hearing for, for the last two days is making it far, very hard for her. But she wants to fight as much as she can not to increase prices for her customers. Instead, she is not shopping from supermarkets. She's going to farmers' markets. She's going to cash and, and carries to try to control these, these, these costs. 
but as her purpose is not to dilute the quality of the product, but manage to control the costs. However, with the people trying to pay more by credit cards during the pandemic, it made it really difficult to manage her finances. More painful than a 3.5% credit card fee is that the credit cards pay you 30 days later. And with somebody who doesn't have accounting knowledge, it's very hard to manage the cash flows. So in order to address this weakness, she has done an online accounting, uh, accounting course. Although she will tell you herself, she still has a lot to learn. Now, I want you to think of all the asteroid hits that Zezé has taken. The pandemic hit her, but she put her cart in the street and sells drive through Inflation hits, and she's trying to source cheaper instead of increasing prices. She's not refusing to accept credit cards or try to charge more for them, but instead, she's doing a course to adapt her skill set. So, ZZ is reframing her perspective. She's doing that in order to adapt. And this is critical for the same, in the same way for us in the investment world in the forthcoming period. Let's take, for example, how we look at consumer staples and consumer discretionary by using an ethnographic lens and challenging our assumptions. Consumer discretionary is a classification for goods and services that are not viewed essential to consumers, like going for a restaurant meal or going on a holiday. They're, they're desirable as long as there is some extra disposable income. And they tend to suffer the most when, during economic cyclicality. Now, the typical view is that you don't want to hold uh, discretionary, you hold staples during times when incomes are being eroded. And I can tell you, in the GFC, I had no discretionary, only staples in my portfolio. But that doesn't mean that this, that is still true today. That, can we still go and hide in stables companies with great brands and high quality management? During the pandemic, people's focus on health has shifted from reactive to proactive. And with that came a different perspective of how they prioritize their consumption and expenditures. Consumption in staples is going through three phases. First, you have moderation. People are just cutting down on things they associate directly with illness. For example, uh, sugar and diabetes, salt and hypertension, smoking and cancer. On the other hand, you start including items that you think will make you healthier or extend your, your, your life and make, you, make you more, your immune system more robust, like vitamins and supplements. But the majority of our expenditure sits in this middle category of substitution. For example, in Brazil, people, instead of eating red meat twice a week, they eat it once every two weeks. To make sense of it, we put this in this matrix where you start from the left with expensive and move to cheaper items, and you start from less healthy and going to the top with healthier items. The danger zone from any stable company is if you're sitting in the bottom left category where you're producing a product which is viewed as unhealthy and expensive. No defensive mode, no brand, no quality management is going to protect you in this environment. The way that you can be robust is if you provide a value for money, healthy product. But during this current period, there is a third factor, which is pent up demand coming out of COVID. After being locked down in their, in their homes, people want 
to go to take their kids to cinemas on holidays and uh, even meet their friends in restaurants. They're prioritizing these experiences. They're telling us they don't want inflation to drag them down into a self-imposed lockdown. As a result, the pent-up demand is so strong that some discretionary categories are acting as more resilient than some of these tables. So in this current environment, we don't have to look at just income. We need to think of the other two factors, which is pent-up demand and health, which means in the current environment, our current playbooks no longer work. We need to take a wider, view, a wider, a wider perspective view in order to make investments. So how do you portfolio construct in such an environment? you adapt because your previous assumptions and playbooks don't work. You need new learning mechanisms. You need to move away from a single loop learning where you came up with a solution based on traditional learning and then you get defensive and argue when you get it wrong. We need to move to iterative and dynamic loop learning where we continuously adjust our skill set based on what we see in the environment, and we remain curious about what we, we don't understand. That means we need to develop a wider set of skills. And when we do due diligence on, on companies, we shouldn't just look at their past performance. We need to understand the learning mechanisms they have in order to adapt to these environments. And the same applies when, we, when people do manager due diligence. Now, I don't mean to imply that you need to change everything you do. Some of the things you do, like effective manager due diligence or pick a stock, won't change that much. But you need to be able to reframe your perspective. For example, how do you take advantage of the current anxiety-heightened period in this, in this environment? I would suggest by going back and looking at social trends that are likely to outlive this current period. For example, the circular economy, sustainable urbanization, decarbonization, the digital revolution. And as I mentioned earlier, this really strong health and wellness trend. And particularly strong for emerging markets, the rising middle classes, financial inclusion, education. There is no reason that managers should not focus on these trends that match their styles so they wouldn't style drift, and they have an edge in researching. But how do you find with Asteroid you're going to prioritize? I suggest by going back to basics and looking at everything from first principle. What is the purpose of a stock market? It's to provide liquidity in return for future cash flows. It's there so that any investor at any point in time can receive the, the discounted future income at any point. And that is simply what it is. Now, let's look at it visually. A, a company is generating excess returns above its weighted average cost of capital or WAC. Now, this is attractive and it will attract competition. And this will cause the returns to deteriorate. Look at my sloping down red line. The period that we think it will take before they get eliminated and go down to work, we call it the competitive advantage period. In here, I gave you an example of six years. And your 
edge is in researching these trends and understanding what really is a competitive advantage period. And that's why I said go deep in the trends in this period. Now, the value of a company is its future discounted cash flow. It's going to be made of two parts. It's the returns it made during its normal, uh, its, uh, normal periods, which returns in line with WAC, which is area A, and the excess returns it makes during this competitive advantage period, which is area, area B. This is effectively what any TCF calculation is doing for you. Now, in, a kind, in this current environment where you have heightened anxiety and people trying to navigate macro or panicking and panic selling, you can take advantage of it by actually reversing this process and starting with the current share price and working back to see what the market is implying. So this is just looking at the stock and looking at well, how many years of competitive advantage is the current share price implying. In this case, the stock could be implying less than one year. And your role as a researcher is to say, does this make sense? I have visibility of what the cash flows will be over the next year. Does this make sense based on my competitive analysis of the environment? And if the market is not right, then the bigger the difference between the market-implied competitive advantage period and your competitive advantage period, which is area D, the bigger this opportunity. The area D is the excess cash flow returns that the market is not asking you to pay for. They're there for free if you believe that the, the competitive advantage will last, for, will last for a longer period. Now, reframing the research, like I have just done, helps you focus on the fundamentals and what is important for these companies and understanding things you have an edge in, in like competitive intensity. And it helps you move back to think about the long term. Long term investing is not that complicated. Long term investing is simply capturing a long term trend and where you have a decent margin of error between expectations and what is priced in. Now, I want to take you back to where I started on The Empire Strikes Back. In that movie, there is a part where Luke Skywalker is, train, is training with Yoda in Dagobah. And all of a sudden, R2-D2 alerts him that his X-wing is sinking in a, sinking in a swamp. Luke thinks it's impossible to get it out. Yoda, a Jedi master with knowledge of everything in the universe, except for syntax and grammar, tells him, you must unlearn what you have learned. I'm going to leave you today with the same advice. In an asteroid field, we need to move away and onto a dynamic and iterative loop learning, continuously adapting our skill sets based on what we see in the environment and being curious about what we don't understand. We have to go back to first principle and challenge our assumptions like every single one of the sessions you watched of the last two days and how I have tried to do it today. And be more like Zeze. She focuses on her purpose and continuously adapts. And with every asteroid hit she has taken, she has come back stronger 
and more resilient.